0: This AIM Hometown Innovations podcast is sponsored by Energy Systems Group.
1: ESG provides solutions that enable our customers to do more, be safer, learn, teach, live. There's something all of our people and projects have in common. Exceptional ideas and delivery in pursuit of a better way. And throughout our journey, we've been creating springboards to help those we serve reach higher heights with a promise to always leave things better than we found them. This is ESG, and this is what we mean when we say, push further, think beyond.
0: Welcome to AIM Hometown Innovations Podcast. This podcast is designed to offer insights, best practices, and innovative solutions for the challenges facing Hoosier cities and towns. Each edition will offer ideas and inspiration while showcasing the talent and commitment of Indiana's local leaders. Enjoy the program. Hello, I'm Matt Greller with AIM and welcome to the AIM Hometown Innovations Podcast. We are lucky enough to have three guests for this edition of the podcast. And due to scheduling, we'll be recording the episode in two sessions. Uh, For our first segment, I'd like to welcome Senator Eric Cook, and Representative Ed Soliday, Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us, Matt.
2: Yes, thank you, Matt.
0: Our uh, our second segment will be an interview with Senator Ed Charbonneau. We'll welcome him later in the podcast. And, and before we jump in, you know, it's been five years now, and I can't ever not let an opportunity go by without thanking you both for the, the work you did on infrastructure back in 2017. Um, I know Representative Soliday, you you led the charge in the House and and just did a fantastic job. Uh, I doubt anybody drives around Indiana more than I do, uh, and it's easy to see where all that that effort is being put in, put to work in cities, towns, counties, and the state all over the all over the place. So, just a quick thank you before we we jump in.
2: Thank you, Matt. Right now, our road costs, as you know, maintenance costs are up way over 20 percent year over year so it's just critical we we hold the course we have still got as you well know we've got cities uh and and there's room for some adjustment as the rurals get caught up but our cities uh still need significant help with roads Without and what question. form that takes is something we can talk about
0: Let's jump in by talking about the task force on wastewater infrastructure investment and service to underserved areas you both co chaired the task force. And have been talking about shoring up our I think what we like to call the invisible infrastructure for a long time it's sort of the next horizon to tackle. Um, Maybe you could both take a step back to when the task force was formed. Talk about the goals for the group before you ever held the first meeting and what you were hoping the task force would achieve. Well, Matt,
1: um, the task force was formed the year before uh, last, uh, by statute, and uh, convened in 2021. And this was a model that uh, has been successfully used in the past for um, highly complex and very large issues. And you alluded to one in your intro with uh, Chairman Soliday's leadership on the roads and transportation issue. And he used the task force model very successfully there. We have since used it um, with energy. And we are in, as as you know, um, a second two year cycle of energy policy using this similar model and it was used prior to that with water as well. So it began with legislation in 2020. Uh, We did our work um, over the summer of uh, 2021 and that you will recall was a busy summer. We were doing energy policy and we were back doing redistricting as well Um, but we had a very committed um, group of participants um, and I want to just take a moment to acknowledge the role of AIM in this particular task force. Uh, three of our task force members come uh, right from uh, city leadership. We had Mayor Craig uh, representing small communities. We had Mayor Jensen representing larger communities. We had John Duffy, uh, a city utilities director on the task force. And our presenters um, included, and I hope I don't miss anybody, uh, Todd Burton, who's a Chief of Staff with the City of Westfield. Uh, Chris Griesel, City Attorney of Fishers. David Henderson, Utility Director, City of West Lafayette. David Kincaid, who is the uh, Town Council President at Sheridan. Uh, your own Jenna Nepper, uh, Governor Fairs, Director at AIM. And finally, Matt Wirtz, who's the Director of Utility Engineering with the City of Fort Wayne. So uh, those were people associated with AIM that contributed greatly to the work of our task force last summer and culminating in Senate Enrolled Act 272.
0: Yeah, I think I remember correctly, you met five times in a very short window. I know mayors don't have a very long attention span, so that was probably putting a lot of pressure on Mayor Mayor Jensen to meet that many times uh, in a short period of of time. I think you developed, what, five pillars, if I remember correctly, Um, wastewater utility service, asset management, rates for self-sustaining systems regionalism education and workforce training technical support and oversight we discussed these findings and recommendations under each of these pillars now i'll get to the question but you alluded to it already with senate bill 272 so among the the many things the bill does one is a requirement that local units must have a water and and wastewater asset management plan in, in order to apply for loans from the state you know much like we saw with roads uh back five or six years ago which has turned out to be a, an excellent exercise i think for cities and towns in our case to have those asset management plans in place so while well, it can be a lot of work to get these completed there are lots of resources out there to help you don't have to necessarily hire somebody to get it done uh, so talk about your impetus what testimony did you hear from the task force that Submitted your idea to have this key provision in, in 272.
2: Well, I I think the first thing was as, as Senator Cook said, we had the model that worked well in roads. And we'd had a couple task forces for surface water and, and uh drinking water before, but it was pretty obvious that the funding system uh was fairly helter skelter Uh, we had a lot of different groups um, uh, granting money and uh, people applying and not having a clear path in how to get money for uh, what particular need and then look just looking at particularly those entities that uh, were unable to be part of a city and wound up with small wastewater groups, or organizations run by homeowners associations that never raised rates, uh, we said, we need something uh, put in place that um, set the standards to get money. Um, and that hence the the um, asset management plan. Uh, they're pretty well advocated across the country and uh, I think between Senator Cook and I, listening to the testimony, uh, which was pretty strong, we needed uh, some incentive system to get people to use these um, asset management plans just for themselves to know where they stood and where their risks were. So um, I know both Senator Cook and I felt fairly strongly, we needed to, to have some system of, of knowing first of all, the entities knowing where they stood, and then we as a state knowing where we stood, where can we best direct revenue for the best uh, impact? Matt, uh, in your
1: question, um, you, know, you noted um, the, the resource issue um, as we built the finding and recommendations of the task force into legislation. Um, one of the elements was pulling the asset management plan forward into the process earlier into the process and and you noted that many communities have lacked resources, um, to do that. And we took note of that and the legislation creates an extension program. At a state university, which we expect to be Purdue university modeled largely after the LTAP program to be a resource to communities, a technical resource, but also a repository of data that can be shared and used by others. And the intent here is not to replace the traditional role of engineers and consultants in that process, but rather actually to enhance and supplement that that work. So We've already had some discussions uh, with Purdue about what that uh, could look like. And we're very excited about that extension program filling that technical gap that may exist for some particularly small communities. Secondly, we've heard over and over for years about the workforce shortage within the utility industry. And certainly water and wastewater, we're aware of the aging out, so to speak, of certified operators in particular. And, but it's throughout the utility world to include telecom and gas and, and electric. And uh, so to address that, um, the, the, uh, the legislation has language that better aligns our career and technical education program here in Indiana with utility workforce needs by creating a specific utility career cluster with associated pathways. Mm. And this is something that I've been working on for several years uh, trying to, to get accomplished. And um, uh, we did uh, through Senate Enrolled Act 272. So we hope over time um, that, that that helps uh, increase the supply of qualified workers for uh, utility jobs in general across Indiana, but water and wastewater in particular.
0: Yeah, I can't, this isn't a question, I guess, but more of a comment. I can't tell you how important that is, as you, particularly right now, as we're struggling finding employees to fill all sorts of municipal positions, police, fire, police in particular, Jennifer and I were just talking about that this morning. Um, It's a critical issue and the aging out as you, very well described in the utility sector is a, a major concern um, you know clearly we're going to have to go to some sort of regional program where you have certified operators taking care of a couple different probably smaller communities in a particular area uh, we just got to be more creative in, in that arena um, you also i think talked a little bit in, in 272 about the indiana finance authority and, and sort of made them the the single point of contact for all you know administration of water and wastewater funds. That's a really important step too. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, I, I think that's a real key piece of the legislation. Senator Cook can expand on his view. The more I we listened to the various groups that controlled money, whether it was federal money or state money, it was pretty obvious that there was not a lot of interaction going on which uh, in the testimony sort of led to if I were a a mayor or someone trying to get money uh, first where do I start and if one turns me down uh, do I have a chance somewhere else and it just became clear to me that we needed a central clearinghouse and IFA has just shown not that the others haven't shown professionalism but they have so shown such professionalism in the clean water piece. Uh, I think for my part, we wanted to get to one-stop shopping for the customer and make sure we optimize the money that we had out there. They, Depending on whose study you look at, the size of the problem is in the billions. And to be able to use that money efficiently um, needed a central clearinghouse. So Senator Cook, I mean that was my view that I felt so strongly about IFA centralization. We both did.
1: And um, I think you'll see that centralization and standardization um, bring a lot of benefit to the process as as we go forward. With what appears to be um, large sums of money, Uh, coming down from the federal government and uh, making sure that, uh, to the extent that we can, that that's applied consistent with the policy uh, set forth in the uh, legislation and according to the task force's findings and recommendations. So that one-stop shop, that single, essentially single point of contact, if you will, I think is going to be very key to the success of uh, this effort.
0: You touched on it already senator cook and i made a comment about it too but in, in terms of aging out issue and recruiting people into this field are either of you seeing any emerging trends in, in either the public or the investor owned space that is you know addressing that issue in a creative way that we can take lessons learned from
1: well i would um there are several and i would note the uh, apprenticeship program that is operated by the Alliance of uh, Indiana Rural Water. Um, that's a fantastic uh, program. Um, I'm aware of one um, local water utility that has two apprentices right now, real time. And, and it, it is something that's very innovative. And um, I know that um, it's caught a lot of attention, and I think it'll probably end up as a national model in many ways. So the Alliance has really done some great work with that, you know, apprenticeship uh, program, the way it's structured, and the way it's funded in particular. I
2: I think one of the barriers uh, is I had the opportunity a a week ago Monday to spend the day at Purdue and an hour with uh, President Daniels has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Um, And while we have some training programs available, one of the key things in my mind is something you brought up, Matt, and that is getting regional alliances where these small communities can't afford an engineer, um, getting past the um, parochialism, if you will, that if it can't be mine, I don't want one and getting partnerships, they may be opponents in the sectional basketball team, but or sectional basketball game. But the only way that we can attract people is have a salary equal to what they can make somewhere else. And the only way I knew, know to see that happen is if there are partnerships created there out there among small communities.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's something you'll see us pushing uh, switching gears just a little bit, still in the utility space, I suppose, but electric vehicles, y- your favorite subject, right?
2: <laughs>
0: what? Uh, where, where are we going next, Representative Soliday, and what it specifically does it mean for local road funding, etc.?
2: Well, I think we're going to have to address it. Um, the federal folks like to announce big numbers, and then when they send us the treasury letter that says, here's how you can spend it. Uh, the guidance for the money that the feds have given have said, uh, contrary to what was said publicly, they they say it, it has to be spent on charging stations within uh, one mile of an interstate and some other specifics. and. Um, getting the business community to be willing to give up parking spaces and so forth for this. We looked at it pretty hard at the Energy Task Force, and we'll probably come back to it in session four again this year. But Purdue basically said, if we reach the president's goal of 50% sales by 2030, uh, penetration will still only be 20%. And then most of the studies I've seen uh, say that about 85% of charging will be done at home. That means the convenience store or whatever or the community is going to get 15% or 20% in 2030. And it's fairly significant investment to uh, put in charging stations. So trying to get to a plan. I know Indot has a questionnaire out right now and uh, trying to get to a plan that um, meets something that is an undefined demand. We're finding some split off with Cummins and uh, with Toyota in particular saying, wait a minute, all electric is not the end game. Uh, Battery powered truck is going to be so heavy, they're going to lose so much load, it'll be unprofitable and so you need to look at hydrogen. And we've made a major move, Purdue, uh, BP and others, to try to get a hydrogen hub for Indiana because that distribution is a lot simpler than electric vehicle charging. So one of the things that troubles me in this whole area is we have engineers and then we have vision casters. Vision casters, as you recall, said that we would have autonomous vehicles, completely autonomous in 13, in 13 cities by 2019. And the engineers said, we're not close. But yet the vision, the vision casters got the headline. So I think as Senator Cook knows, because he and I communicate fairly regularly, we're looking at significant electricity shortages in Texas and California, and we have MISO warning us so that's with very low penetration of electric vehicles so seeing the big picture in uh, i see the world kind of in a gantt chart this must happen before that can happen and so forth and so on so i think this is a major problem senator cook and i both have said the legislation we did last year which was by no means uh bipartisan unanimous bipartisan it's going to be iterative We're going to be we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know what the marketplace is going to do and what are cities going to do. I mean, we had some significant pushback in the House that um, we were somehow blocking uh, restaurants from putting solar panels on their roof so customers could charge their cars while they're eating. And when we ask folks to do the math, how big a restaurant roof do you have? Possibly uh, because of how much electricity it takes to charge a vehicle in X amount of time, they didn't wanna talk about that. So the vision casters were saying, you could put it on your beauty parlor roof, you could put it on your hot dog stand and just charge your car for whatever it takes and it would be a beautiful world. Well, then you look at how much electricity it takes to charge a vehicle and how many square foot of solar panels and the math just doesn't work. So, so to your point, um, I think we need to proceed with caution and operate on what we do know, not on what vision casters are throwing at us.
0: Makes sense. Anything, Senator Cook, on that topic? No, I think it's well said. I think
1: uh, we produced a, a, a thoughtful bill and um, I think it's a step, but not a not a dive, you know, into that that area.
0: Well, it's completely switched gears now. You both serve on elections. You both were involved in the redistricting process. We've had an election now, a primary election. Um, everybody's happy, I'm sure. Everybody's thrilled with the new districts. What are some of the things you're hearing out uh, and about from your fellow legislators?
1: Well, you know. Um, As far as redistricting, as I watch, uh, having been through it now two cycles in 2011 and 2021, I I watch what's going on nationally. And I can't help but notice that how many states with redistricting commissions are ending up in chaos and in in what seems like endless litigation. So we hear so much about um, the need for a redistricting commission, but I'm not sure based upon what I've seen uh, over the last 10 years nationally that 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 really is a a better alternative to the way Indiana does it. Um, So I would again just note that we've now been through two redistricting cycles uh, without any state or federal legal challenges. Uh, We've tried to do it in uh, a transparent uh, sort of way and. fulfilling our, our constitutional obligations and the obligations uh, required of us under federal law and uh, so those that process does tend to get a little partisan it's something we go through uh, every every decade um, but um, it appears to be working very well
2: I, I think for us in the house I, I agree with Senator cook Um he and I attended many of the regional hearings and, and they were relatively partisan, I would say um, in input. But no matter what you do, there are unintended consequences. I mean, we in the house lost a person that I consider very experienced um, finance person. Uh, We're losing our ways and means chair and He would have been high on my list to be a successor Uh, that that's that's partially when one looks at it closely a result of redistricting but with redistricting you push one it's like a balloon you push one place and it comes out the other so. um, Even when folks think. uh, That we have complete control of it we don't there's only so much you can do and and we lost some we lost a very valuable asset in it and i don't know that there's anything we could have done but part of that you have to attribute to the redistricting
1: well and and as chairman soliday said it is a little bit like squeezing a toothpaste tube you know we were dealing with the reality of significant population decline in some parts of the state such as southwest indiana and significant growth in Uh, pockets of the state, uh, primarily suburban um, Indianapolis and in Hamilton County. And um, uh, so those, um, that's really that and your immovable boundaries uh, tend to be what drive uh, the map making uh, more so than any particular goal or objective that that, uh, groups may have. And so we see that every 10 years, we see demographic changes, we see change in, in political uh, demographics uh, throughout the state. Um, I was pleased that we didn't lose a, uh, we didn't gain, but we didn't lose a congressional representative. There are some states that had um, relatively significant loss in their congressional representation and other states that had growth in there. And that's just a function of where people are choosing to live nationally. So. Um, Indiana wasn't impacted in terms of their congressional representation either positively or, or negatively, as we often do. We, uh, you know, we we had some, I think, some some steady growth, but not enough to gain a congressman or lose a
3: congressman.
0: As we wrap up this segment of the podcast, uh, maybe look forward to next session a little bit. You know, I know that. Cities and towns here at AIM will be looking at the traditional things like business, personal, property tax, and I suspect the uh, the rapid increase in assessed valuations will come up. Um, affordable housing and lots of things housing related, and of course, it's a budget season session next year as well. Um, what do you anticipate your personal priorities to be next session?
2: Uh, well, I think. For my part, it depends on what role I have, but the um, we're going to have to deal with uh, as you've seen the revenue that we saw um, uh, yesterday is significant. We're going to have to deal with that. Everyone is going to want money, and and dealing with that in an appropriate way. I think the property, personal property tax is a big issue on the House side. Uh, Senator Cook can speak to it on the Senate side. Uh, I know leadership would like to get rid of it without hurting cities and towns and counties and doing it in a way, uh, we tried last year with, with um, replacement where the cities basically we would uh, do a rebate system. Uh, didn't seem to be real popular but uh, the economic development folks are, uh, and and I go with the speaker doing uh, fundraising things and we hear about it, um, that it's the number one or two barrier to getting uh, economic development things done. So finding a creative solution to that, I think is high on the priority list. Um, The difficulty is, going to be at least depending what the Supreme court does, um, the headlines will, and the noise will all be around where we're going to be on the abortion issue. And it's going to be very hard to keep people focused on things like what does this, uh, what appears to be large S, how long is it going to last? How is it reflected in the inflation picture and how do we address Um, I, for one, um, probably uh, uh, am concerned that if we do too much with tax cuts before we know where this inflation is going, uh, we could run out of money real, real fast because we think we're rich at the moment.
1: Senator Cook, how about you? Well, the uh, Energy Policy Development Task Force will be uh, meeting for its final interim and will be producing a report, so there may be some recommendations uh, coming from the work of that task force. Um, At the local level, I've asked the Legislative Council to assign a couple of topics for study this summer. Um, One is the uh, growing cost of the public defender system, particularly in small and rural counties and as well the uh, cost of ambulance service or lack thereof, particularly in small and rural counties. Um, so those are two issues that I am hearing a great deal about at the local level and and hope that in some form or another we can study this summer and possibly come
3: back with uh, some solutions.
0: It's a conversation for another day, Senator Cook, but we're hearing a lot about the ambulance issue as well. It's uh... A monopoly in some areas of the state, for lack of a better description, becoming a bigger and bigger situation. For and sure. in some
1: cases, like oh, nearly a complete absence of of service mm-hmm. or or not enough, and that's that's um, very dangerous.
2: Uh, Matt, just to build a little on what Senator Cook said, uh, the task force is going to focus its first session on reliability. If you're looking at watching what MISO is saying. Uh, we could in Indiana experience brownouts. uh, uh, Normally the utilities have, um, suddenly coal is affordable and they're calling on, they're calling on coal fired utilities, but the price is just going out of sight. And so um, like the city I live in, we spend a lot of money on electricity just for our sanitation plant and and water supply and so forth so i think even the cities themselves um let alone the residentials the issues of affordability and reliability are going to be really high and and what the limits of what we can actually do about it are are fairly limited
0: great points well we'll end it there for this segment of the podcast thank you both uh, you're two of the best uh, honest hard-working legislators we have and certainly a pleasure to have you join us on the podcast today and uh, look forward to the second segment coming up shortly thank you both thank you Matt
2: thank you Matt
0: our next guest as I mentioned earlier in the podcast is
3: Senator Ed Charbonneau Senator welcome to the podcast Matt thank you thank you very much I appreciate the uh, the invitation uh, to join you as
0: you know, we um, we had a couple of your colleagues on earlier, Senator Cook and Representative Ed Soliday, talking about a variety of things, wastewater, water-related, and that's probably where I'd like to start with you. You've been sort of the, the founding father of water task force analysis and studies in Indiana. Um, so maybe just take a, a quick glance back in history into the 2018 range and talk about the the water task force that you initiated and, and how that all originated and, and why you think it was so important to to lay the groundwork for what we're talking about now
3: yes um, and uh, appreciate uh, you, you raising the issue matt because now I, I think it's important that we take a quick quick journey back to um even 2012 but when we started all of this there were a couple of of um of parameters that we set and they were first of all we were going to have all parties at the table uh, as we moved forward we were going to use data to drive all of the decisions that we made um the IFA uh, was going to have to play a key role in all of this um and and at the time you uh, know I'm talking about 2012 really nobody was paying attention too much. And I think the first thing that might've brought attention was the town of Avon case with the dealing with the the aquifer. And, um, you know, it, it started at that point, I think. And we went from there to requiring the IURC to start putting together studies every year looking at uh, water services, wastewater services, and, and their recommendations. Um, and, and by the time we, we got to 2015, we were uh, uh, looking at IDEM, request, requ- requiring them to look at the f- 15 largest utilities in, in the state and, and also five, uh, five other ones and you know, just talk about where they were with regard to um, you know, asset management plans, uh, wh- whatever, I mean, whether or not they were gonna even pay, be able to pay for future needs in water. By 2017, we required the IFA to study the ability of utilities to provide clean, safe drinking water long into the future. And um, we created an infrastructure uh, assistance fund, and that leads into 2018. It was just building up to that point when we we got to the first task force that we created, and that was the um, the water infrastructure task force, and um, and it was it was. Um, mandated to take a look at long-term water, wastewater, stormwater needs in Indiana, and give a report back before the end of 2018. Uh, by 20, and I'll stop stop there, but you know, we went 2019 to the stormwater task force, um, 2021, the wastewater task force. So you know the 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 task force was a great way to, I guess, go back to the very uh, founding principles that we had. That we were going to have everybody at the table, and those task forces did exactly that. You know, in that model. Just sort of thought of
0: this has been used in areas outside of water and wastewater. If you look at the road funding discussion from seventeen, and yep. the. Gas tax and all those things. A lot of that task force work was driven around the same things: data and the approach that that's now being used in water and wastewater. Right, right. So let's uh, fast forward to the the current task force or the most recent task force, I guess I should say. You were a, a member of this group and I think dove pretty heavily into it. Talk about what you learned, maybe why the asset management plan requirement in Senate Bill
3: 272 was so important and, and where you see things going next. Well, yeah, it, um, you know, we, we found as we were going through this process for, for whatever reasons, um, um, municipalities or you know, wastewater or um, drinking water utilities um, hadn't really done a, a, a good long-term look at what what was coming. And you know, during that same period, we had the uh, lead pipe uh, issues cropping up. So it was it was important then that uh, again we stopped and we looked at what the facts were um, before we we moved forward. And you know that was exactly what uh, what the task force was uh, tasked with and uh was able to to do that uh, again the long term look at what we have um do, do we have funding are we are we funded uh, do, do our rates cover um our, our long-term needs and um yeah the, a lot of the findings were um, um I, I, I want to say surprising, but um, maybe more disturbing than, than surprising because, um, you know, and, and there were a lot of reasons for it. Um, yeah, but get into the issue of um, folks having to raise water rates and uh, as you're well aware, you know, there were a lot of, or there were a number of utilities that didn't want to raise rates. So they were trying to operate uh, their system on rates that have been in effect for X number of years. So when you looked at it that way, you kind of highlighted what the problems are in, in the future.
0: Yeah. yeah, I agree, You know, and I, I think it's always a challenge to get elected officials to as you very well know to to pass any sort of increase, whether it's a tax or a rate it's uh you know it's new new money being
3: charged to constituents and it's a a challenging thing
0: that we're faced with for sure
3: yeah and 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 that issue matt isn't just for the local folks you know the state legislature gags at doing the same thing (laughs) so Fair fair enough it's a tough one
0: before we uh, move away from the water wastewater issue any other closing thoughts on that
3: topic that you wanted to dive into uh, no the, the the one thing i want to mention was, one of the keys was getting into the budget and i don't re- remember which year that it was but uh, the 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 20 million dollars to go into the um the uh, the I this the revolving fund that the IFA could use for loans and all and that uh, that piece was very very significant for the whole process.
0: Fair enough. Well, I think we'd be wrong not to thank you and Senator Cook, Senator Representative Soliday for all the work we've done on water, wastewater. I you know I think it's it's not easy. You know, it's below the ground. It's not sexy, as everybody always likes to say, yeah. but we're certainly trending in the right direction, and I think the assistance will be there, maybe not in the next year or two years, but certainly in the not-too-distant future, and it's a, a real testament, I think, to the work that you all have been doing.
3: Yeah, and and Matt, you know, last thing, before, before um, we leave the topic, um, I, I think it's significant also that Uh, Again, I I was very, very clear on the way I wanted to move this forward and, you know, the data to drive the decision, but all the players at the table. And I think a a, a good indication of how important that is, um, is the fact that I believe that most every one of the bills that we were dealing with, at least early on, passed unanimously in both the Senate and the House. And maybe even more significantly, with every one of the bills, the Citizens Action Coalition supported what we were doing. Great points.
0: Thanks again for all your work there. Maybe switching gears just just a little bit, or a lot, I guess, actually. (laughs) Um (laughs) we you know we certainly know that there's a a big discussion in the General Assembly, mostly on the House side right now, but I'm sure it'll pick up intensity on the Senate side this coming year on business personal property. Um if I remember correctly, you're former steel employee, so you know the copy quite well. And I, I think from our perspective, cities and towns—if we need to get rid of the tax, we need to get rid of the tax for competitive purposes or whatever. I think our concern is making sure that that revenue stream that comes to cities, towns, counties, schools, libraries, etc., remains intact. So, what are your thoughts on business personal
3: property and where we might be headed next legislative um, session? Uh, yeah, the, that is uh, certainly an issue that uh, we kicked around quite a bit. This past session in in the Senate, also, and um, number one, I I support uh, getting rid of it, um, but I also support and understand full well the importance to cities and towns of that revenue stream, and I, I there's no way I would support. Um, getting rid of that personal property tax without um, without um, a replacement fund for for cities and towns. I mean, it just would not make sense to do it um, if if we had come up with some brilliant idea. If, and we alluded earlier in a discussion about the uh, raising taxes and how it kind of gets caught in everybody's throat um, when when they're trying to decide whether or not they're going to vote for something. But, um, uh, you know, we probably might have done something last year if we had come up, or last session, if we'd been able to come up with a, a, a replacement revenue. We weren't able at that time to come up with the idea, so so it's on the table. It'll be, I'm sure, one of the one of the priorities this next session, and uh, there are going to be a lot of <laughs> a lot of things coming up this next session. I think. Well, we certainly appreciate your comment about uh, not supporting
0: anything that doesn't have replacement revenue. If you can make sure the 49 other colleagues of yours in the Senate go the same direction, that'd be that'd be really yeah. uh, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I asked your uh, your colleagues earlier as well, but what's some what will be some of your individual priorities next session? What are you working on for coming year or so?
3: Yeah, um, you know, I, I chair the uh, health Senate Health Committee, and healthcare costs have uh, kind of leaped to the front of the pack for 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 many reasons, with uh, you know various recent studies and. And, and just the fact that uh, part of those studies show that uh, our, our hospital costs in Indiana are way out of line with, with the, um, the, the rest of the country. Um, but having said that, our, our healthcare system, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I like to say it's not healthy, um, it doesn't care, and it's not a system. It is just—I mean, there are so many pieces to the puzzle that um, finding um, finding the right—it isn't going to be just one thing, and it can't be. But the the right mix of of solutions to the problem. Um, I can go through a whole list of things. I won't do that. But um, the hospital costs the uh, drug costs, PBMs, uh, uh, and, and another, another one, i will get off of that for a second, is the whole nursing home, home health care issue. How we move to, you know, right now we have 70 plus percent of our elderly in nursing homes, and many of those don't have a lot of options, So we we need to find those options for people and and I I think move to a more balanced, um, because nursing home costs for someone to be in a nursing home are much more expensive than allowing somebody to age where they wanna age in their home with their families. And um, that's another one that's, Going to be a tough nut to crack, but we need to to do something uh, about it. You know, the governor had assigned a a task force that uh, Senator Kenley uh, is chairing. They're going to come out with recommendations this year uh, before the session, so that's going to play a role in what we do also. And funding, um, funding for healthcare. We're at the bottom of the pack. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the one-page chart that I put together on all the great things we do for business, how Indiana looks on one side and how we look in in the healthcare area on the other side. It's like two different worlds. Um, we're really good on one side and really bad on the other side. We need to change that. Any um, last question? Any? thoughts on what the
0: recommendations from the task force that's co-chaired by dr. box and Senator Kinley might produce you think it'll be mostly local health department focused or broader
3: um, I think it will be broader in the respect that they're going they're going to come up with um, I, I think a, a a recommendation that to Indiana um, put a whole lot more money into healthcare, and um, in, in, as part of the budget. And you know, I, I'm thinking 250 million dollars. That's just an ed ed guess for what it's worth. But but uh, yeah, fund fund healthcare to start addressing you know some some of those issues that that I talked about. But also locally too. I think when you look at the structure, it's all messed up. I mean, I I, I was stunned the first time I realized that a, a county health officer has no connection whatsoever with the state Department of Health, none. Uh, so we have 92 free agents out there. That and and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mean. They're doing their own thing, and we need to somehow, whether it's look at zones for, for these things and, and get drive more help down from the state to those local areas. Agree,
0: Senator, thank you for being with us on the podcast today, and thank you, everybody, for listening to this extended uh, version of the AIM Hometown Innovations podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Senator. It's always great to talk to you and listen to your... Thoughtful answers and and commentary. Appreciate it
3: very much. Well, thank you, Matt. Appreciate it.
0: This AIM Hometown Innovations podcast was sponsored by Energy Systems Group.